Good morning, everyone. Uh, my name is Fred, if there's anyone here who doesn't know me. Uh, the Bible reading we're going to have this morning is from St. Paul's letter to the Ephesians, the people in Ephesus. And you'll find this on page 1175 of the Red Bibles. Page 1175, Ephesians chapter 3, beginning at verse 14. And this is Paul's prayer for his friends, the congregation in Ephesus. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power, together with all the Lord's holy people, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that it has worked within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Fred. Good morning, everyone. My name's Prash. I'm the senior minister here. Very warm welcome. If you're new or visiting or you're a regular back, it's great to have you in the building. You've joined us uh, in uh, week two of um, uh, a month spent thinking about the, uh, the kind of purpose place and uh, responsibility of God's people here in Willoughby. Uh, we call it our vision series, but essentially it's just an opportunity for us to ask ourselves what, is, what, what kind of church does God want us to be and what does that look like for us? We try take a moment generally around this time of the year. Uh, over the last few years we've done this to, to do this and just help us recalibrate. And so it's good to have you. Let me pray for us before we, we embark on that. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and pray that your Holy Spirit would apply to our hearts and minds this morning and make us more like the Lord Jesus. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Now, this may not be news to you, but if you are a long-termer here in uh, this part of Sydney, I'm not, I've only been here two and a half years, but certainly the reflection I, I've, has been given to me and, and certainly is reflected in the, the, the census data is that this part of Sydney has changed dramatically in the last five to ten years. It's a very different part of Sydney than it was. Certainly 15, 20 years ago, the change is very stark and dramatic. And as we've been thinking about what kind of church God wants here in uh, Willoughby, we have reflected on the nature of that change. Uh, the, the recent census... Um, produced this, these, these details, uh, 
these three graphs, now they don't mean much to you apart from that there's some numbers and there's some suburbs on them, but if I was to apply, I would say that this is the response to the question, does someone in your, was a parent of yours born um, outside Australia, it starts to give you some shape to what I'm pointing out here. 65% of people in Willoughby answered yes to this question. They said, one of my parents was born outside of Australia. This is me, for example. Uh, people in Artarman, the number goes up to 78%. And then when you get to Chatswood, the number is 87%. This is, this, is, this is the world, this is the community that our church sits in the midst of. This is our context. Uh, and, and, and certainly, if you live here, this would be your experience too, I suspect, that uh, wonderfully, we now find the nations on our doorstep, literally. And this number is, is, is to be put into the kind of context of New South Wales, where the equivalent question only results in 57%. So uh, where we live is perhaps one of the most multicultural areas in Australia. In Australia. It's pretty exciting. Um, and it also has left a challenge for us as a church. In August 2020, we, after um, a period of kind of consultation, reflection, and, and of course, dealing with the first round of COVID, uh, we came up with a vision statement which says, we long to be a church made beautiful, diverse, and large by the gracious work of Christ. We talked last week about the centrality and the importance of the local church. But this week and the next couple of weeks, I just want to think about those three descriptors that we have, we have adopted as part of what we see, the vision of God's church here in Willoughby. And the, the second one, diverse, is a, a word that in part is a reflection of the context in which we think God has put this church and is building this church. A church that is, as we look back, ethnically, culturally, very diverse. Uh, and so we long to be a church that reflects, in a sense, that reality of the world we live in, that God has put us in. We long to be a church made diverse by the gracious work of Christ. But what is also to be said is that this is not just a vision for our church which is strategically or culturally or contextually driven, but it's actually a vision that's driven from the Bible itself. Our vision for our church comes in part from a passage in Revelation 7 where John is given a vision of the final church and it's a multitude with all nations, tribes and tongues gathered before the throne of God. God's vision for his church is a church that is diverse ethnically, culturally, every tribe and tongue and nation. But that's not the only time it actually happens in Revelation. You might think, oh, we've picked one little part of Revelation. It's actually a continuing theme of the Revelation account. The final, the final gathering of God's people, the end of God's plan, is this picture of a city, and the city has the kings and the nations bringing their glory and honour into it. We talked in Genesis in our previous series about the Tower of Babel and the scattering of the nations. But at the end of God's story, his vision is actually for all the nations to come back to this great city. It's a vision of God's people from every culture, nation, tongue, and tribe. And so this is important, though, because when we say we long to be a diverse 
church, we don't mean we just want to be a church that's for Chinese people or for Sri Lankan people, I'm from, originally from Sri Lanka, or Australian people, whatever that means now. We actually want all of those cultures and nations to come in service of Christ, actually. We're, in a sense, trying to develop an alternate culture which is shaped by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I think this is a beautiful vision because, you know, the the reality is that our culture, which is primarily kind of Western, uh, that culture sees the gospel in certain ways and accentuates certain parts of God's message to us, but it also is deaf to parts of God's message. You go to another culture in Africa and it hears another part of the message of the gospel and it accentuates certain things as deaf but it's when these cultures meet together around the gospel they actually have the capacity to shape and broaden and deepen our understanding of who God is and what his great plan is for his church and for his people and so I think it's a beautiful vision that's the vision we've thrown we'll talk about some of the other aspects that over the coming weeks I think it's a pretty optimistic vision of the church I think it's longing for something that we are not necessarily actually as God's people. Uh, If you look around our building, thankfully, there's a few different nations and cultures, 87%. Don't know if we're there yet. And, And the reality is that Christianity in our culture is understood primarily as a European religion brought into our nation. There's also a reality that uh, the church itself is more and more kind of on the nose with the younger generation. Here's how one uh, group of authors put it. I said, one th- this is about America, but I think it's, it's probably even more so applicable for Australian culture, broadly speaking. One third of young outsiders said that Christianity represents a negative image with which they would not want to be associated. Now, if that's the culture, that's a challenge as well. And on top of that, We just naturally live in a society now that becomes more polarised. It actually wants to solo off groups of people. It wants to identify us by one thing alone, you know, one cultural trait, one sociological inclination. And so the idea of different groups of people coming together uh, is, is not something that naturally fits into our understanding of communities. Now, all of this means that, I think, if you ask someone else, oh, can the church really be culturally diverse? I say, of course not. The church is, well, most people say, the church is a white man's religion. That's the first thing they probably say. Man and white. But you know what? I don't think that's just an external perception of, our, of, the, of the vision for God's church. I think it's also sometimes an internal perception. I think we have... And this is just a moment of truth for us as the reflection of St. Stephen's. And if you're visiting today or you're new, this is not about you. This is about us. But God willing, it'll be about, well, you be us in the future. I think we are a pessimistic bunch of people. I think we are pessimistic. I think we think that's the world we live in. And so the church in general is in a state of decline. Its relevance is receding rather than increasing. I think we're pessimistic because I hear it 
When, when, when we talk about reaching new people, doing new things, embracing new opportunities, we think, ah, good on you for trying, but we've tried that before. It's a classic line, which uh, new ministers often hear, we've tried that before. And what that reflects, I think, is a pervasion of that pessimism about the place, role, and purpose of the church in the world, which has pervaded our own thinking about God's church. And I guess I want to challenge us as we embark on this reflection on our vision, our purpose and place in this place. Do not let that, do not let that shape your understanding of God's church. Fred read for us from Ephesians chapter 3. Just before the, the section that Fred wrote, literally a couple of verses before, verse 10, Paul says this about the church. He says, his, that is God's intent, was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be named to the rulers, authorities in the heavenly realms. Now, when Paul talks about church, he's not talking about an institution. He's not saying, oh, the Anglican church with its bishops and deacons and all that stuff. He's talking about through the gathering of God's people, And he's thinking about the Ephesians, which is a small group of God's people in a world where not only the state is persecuting the church, but also their kind of their mother country, the Jewish people are persecuting the church. In that context, Paul says, that group of people is the one through whom God is making his manifold wisdom known, not just even to earthly authorities, but to heavenly realms and heavenly authorities. And Paul's words should strike a dagger at the heart of pessimism about the local church, because he's looking at a small church, a fledgling church, in the midst of a world opposed to the work of the gospel, and he says that is God's great tool to declare his wisdom to all of creation. He has a big vision of the local church, a huge vision of the local church. And you know what? I want to say we should take our lead from, God, from Paul's words here about the local church. Do not succumb to the pessimism that is forever preached at us about God's work in and through his church. Of course, the church, I said this last week, I'll say it again in case you weren't here and you didn't hear it. Of course, the church does downplay it dumb things. Of course, the church has failings. Of course, the church makes the church, broadly speaking, and people within the church make mistakes. But amidst the foolishness and the weakness of the church is God's declaration that he is declaring the manifold wisdom to the heavenly authorities. We should be people who, who really take Paul's lead on this and have a big view of God's work in the church, an optimistic view of a vision for God's local church. If he can have it for the Ephesians, he can have it for us. Now, if we set ourselves a great vision for for the church, if that's where we long to be, if that's where we want to go, the, the real question for us on a daily basis is what are the core characteristics of God's church, right? What are the things that characterize God's people if that's where they're going? And I think Paul's, um, the reading that we had here is a great starting point for this, you see. Paul has a great vision for his church 
And so what does he do? The very first verse he says of our reading, he says, for this reason, because I know the church is God's great tool, because you in Ephesus are God's tool, I'm going to get down and pray. I'm going to pray. I see. And then, do you see how he prays? He prays some pretty extraordinary things. He prays that God might strengthen you, that local church, with power. He might give this thing that's weak and insignificant power. The God of the universe might empower this little group of people. He says that Christ might dwell in your hearts. I mean, we breeze past those kind of statements, but just reflect on what that is. He's praying that Jesus Christ, who was before all things, through whom all things have been created, would not just know you or provide for you, but would dwell in your hearts. Jesus Christ, if he is who the Bible says he is, is the most extraordinary person. And Paul prays that he would dwell in your hearts. Then he says that you might know this love that surpasses knowledge. In other words, you would know what's unknowable. You'd know the heart of who God is. You know, we think of God as unknowable in a sense, maybe moments of disclosure. But Paul prays that you would know God truly. You can, he's saying, you can do that. That can, be, that can be possible. And I pray that that would be true for you. That's a, that's a pretty extraordinary prayer. It's, it's a bold prayer. It's an audacious prayer to ask for those things. That creatures could know God like that, could dare to claim these kind of things from God, and yet that's what Paul prays. But this is in the story of the Bible. This is the biblical story of God's people as they've you know, Genesis 3, we heard it, heard it in our previous series. Adam and Eve, they turn their back on God, and yet the next chapter, God's people have the audacity to pray to him when they call on his name. And what God is happy about that. In 2 Kings 19, I've just highlighted a couple of these little moments in the story. Um, Assyria is on the doorstep of this, the little nation of Israel. Israel, though we talk about them a lot, they were always geopolitically a small country in the Old Testament, right? Assyria, the greatest, this is like, this is like America in the 50s or China now. The greatest geopolitical power are literally on the doorstep. And Hezekiah says, Lord, hear your people and save them. And the history books tell us that extraordinarily Sennacherib, the leader of Assyria, is defeated that day. You go forward to the book of Acts, the early church. These two fishermen, John and Peter, have been arrested by the Sanhedrin, threatened. And they, ste- they once released, they're threatened for preaching the gospel. And once released, they say, dear God, enable us, Father, enable us to preach your gospel boldly, And what happens? God does exactly that, and the church doesn't shrink, but multiplies exponentially in those years of the early church. Mark 9, in the midst of Jesus' story, this man comes to him, asking him to heal his son, and Jesus says, only if you can believe, the man prays, help me in my unbelief. That's an extraordinary prayer. In 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 our time and place, when doubt is the great derailer of faith, 
you can actually pray that God would overcome your doubt. And you know what he does in Mark 9? He heals the boy. He grants the father faith. See, the story of the Bible is audacious prayers. He says, when you stand on the precipice of the impossible, you pray big prayers. That's who God's people are. That's what, that's what God's people are meant to do. Not to cower and go quietly into the night. But God's people are to pray big prayers in that moment. D.L. Moody says, every great movement of God over the history of the church has begun, has been traced to people praying. To people praying. This is the story of the church. It's not just the story that we find in Acts. It is the continuing story of the church from those early years through to now. God's people move forward on the basis of prayer audacious, big, bold prayers to God. Wednesday night, we had our prayer meeting. Um, that was a great night. It was a really great night. If you were there, you'll, you'll testify to this. In fact, if you weren't there, Gordon produced a really great booklet um, as a resource for the night, and there are copies up the back of the church in the back corner. Grab one. If you're online, um, you can contact us. We'll send you an electronic copy. Was, it was a fantastic night. I was very encouraged by this. It's very encouraged. First of all, there's like 40 people from all our three services there on a, on a Wednesday night. I was encouraged because I actually talked to someone later and they said how they're not really a person who prays in public normally, but they came and they were deeply encouraged. I love that. It's not just my experience. It's the universal experience of God's people when they come together and pray before God audaciously, confidently, boldly. They experience the deep assurance of God, the provision of God. It's why we've said, actually, the first missional characteristic, so to speak, of our church needs to be that we're people who pray big prayers. If we, if we really long to see this happen, if we believe this is where God's taking his church, I want to call us to pray in light of that. Pray these big prayers. Now, I think the thing that often holds us back in our prayer life is that our, our vision is too narrow for how, how the world works, for, for how things really happen. Our vision is too narrow Michael J. Fox has this quote. I like Michael J. Fox, by the way. He says, everything is cause and effect. If you don't move, nothing will move with you, and nothing will move towards you. He's saying, he's saying, everything is a product of your effort. Everything is cause and effect. Everything should be explainable, in a sense. Anything of worth or value, anything worth investing in, clearly has a cause and effect. Worked hard, got ahead. Raise my kids well, well-balanced, successful. This is how we think. I mean, don't get me wrong, there is some truth to that, of course, because God sets up the world in an ordered way. There is a sense of cause and effect. But that's not the whole story. Hamlet famously says, there is more Horatio in heaven and earth is dreamt of in your philosophy. That's the 15th, 16th century. But it's a truth that's been lost in the 21st century. Our, our vision of life, what's worthwhile, what's, what's capable, what's achievable, is limited by believing that's, that everything is cause and effect. 
It's too narrow. And I tell you, it does actually hinder our prayer life as Christians as well. It hinders it because, um, first of all, we only pray with cause and effect in mind. We think having a good job results in a satisfying life. Lord, give me a good job with a nice boss, earning lots of money. I'll be satisfied. That's just not the truth, of course. Because some of you can testify when having a tough job and a, and a hard boss has opened you up to a deeper sense of life and purpose. It's redirected you, it's shaped you. Now, that doesn't fit into our cause and effect automatically. It doesn't always make sense. It also just kills our prayer life. Because we think, why pray when I can do? I think this is often what kills the church's ministry. We think, why pray when we need to do? Don't get me wrong, cause and effect is not completely wrong, but it's not the whole story. And you know why Paul, you know why Paul goes from having a big vision of the church to praying first for them in Ephesians 3 is the vision of his life is totally different. Okay? He has a broad vision for life, uh, an extraordinary vision. Uh, it, it's, it's a fundamentally different understanding of the life and your purpose and place in it. And you see it in the start of his prayer in verse 14 and 15. He says, For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. He kneels before the Father. He prays, Why? Because He is the one. God is the one from whom everything derives. See, Paul has a much bigger view of himself and the world and also the church in Ephesus. And it is not just a product of the daily cause and effect. I did this, therefore this happened. It fits in a much larger story, which is of God, who was before all things, sustaining all things and taking all things in a particular direction. And it's because he knows God and what God is about that he has confidence to pray. That is the fuel for his prayer, actually. Knowing who God really is and what he's really about shapes his prayers and gives him confidence in those prayers. I want you to imagine you get a gift voucher to go to Key, you know, the restaurant at Circular Key, a three-hatted restaurant, whose famous dish is the snow egg. It's a dessert. Watch MasterChef a few years ago, popped up regularly. Anyway, you go knowing nothing about the restaurant. Imagine you knew none of this, right? You just say, oh, I got this voucher for the restaurant key, circular key, I'm going to go. You go along, you open up the menu, you pick your main, you have a great feed, you get to the dessert menu, and you look at it and you say, snow egg? I'm not eating an egg for dessert. I'm going with the vanilla ice cream and the chocolate slice, thanks. Now, because you don't know what this restaurant is about, you don't know who this chef is, you don't know what... what you don't know what the piece of resistance, so to speak, of, of, the, of the establishment is, you miss out on the, the great joy, actually, of eating at that joint. I was thinking of using an anecdote, actually, of a kebab shop, but I felt like this resonated with a little bit more. Uh, you know what? If you don't know what God is about, if you don't know what the, the jewel in his crown is about, 
Of course, your prayers and your prayer life will always be anemic. It will always be unshaped. You'll be prodding in the dark, uncertain of whether God hears you and how he will answer you. But Paul is absolutely aware of what God is about. In fact, chapter 1 and 2 of Ephesians is Paul outlining the great plan of God, which we call the gospel, which is God before the creation of the world, deciding to love a people, the local church, so much that he would give his only son. This plan. It's a plan that has, you know, as we talked about prayers, it has this formative prayer of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane praying, not my will but yours. A prayer which says, hey, at the centre of God's plan is his willingness to give his own son up for you so that your prayers will always be answered. So when you know that, when you know that arc, when you see the world in light of this great story when you see God in light of what Christ has done for you, it shapes your prayer life. It tells you, oh, there are things that are more important to pray for. There are things which I can be confident God is deeply invested in. And so I'll pray for them, the church and his glory. And there is a reason to be confident here that, because Christ has died for us and so opened a way to the Father. And so, actually, we want to be people not just who pray big prayers, but as our first mission priority says, we want to be people who pray big prayers shaped by this gospel. We want to have... We, we need to be a church that is, has a deep optimism shaped by the gospel. A real optimism of God's work in this place shaped by the gospel. That is what he's about, and so he is committed to it. And that optimism should pour forth in prayer first and foremost. That's why Wednesday night and prayer night is great. That's why every Monday at 8.45 on our Zoom prayer meeting is worthy of your attention. That's why being in a gospel and prayer group is worthy of your time. As we finish, let me just say this, because it's Vision Month. We, we, we have four kind of strategic pieces to our ministry life here. Four things which we think are super helpful for you. Sunday service, outreach, kids and youth ministry, and gospel and prayer groups. Gospel and prayer groups are the place where week in, week out, you meet with God's people to be reminded about God's gospel and the great story of the world you inhabit. They're a place where you're encouraged to bring your prayers in line with that, to cultivate your heart in line with that. And I think they're worth it. Now, here's the sad thing. Only 40% of us regularly attend a gospel prayer group. Some of you are in one, but you don't go, so you don't count. 40%. I think that that has got to have something to do with the pessimism that filters into our view of life and God's church. And I want to encourage you, if you're not in one, if you're in one but you never go, hey, this is worth it. This is worth it. It's worth committing to. And as we finish, look at what Paul says at the end. He says, now to him who's able to do immeasurably more than we ask or imagine. We have a vision for our church. Is that a big vision? No, Paul says it's a small vision. Because God can do more than you can imagine. He can do more than you can put on paper. He can do more than you can craft with your language. Why? Because he has the power that's at work within us. 
Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for drawing us together this morning as your people, and we pray that you might bless your church here for the glory of the Lord Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen.